Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Is it possible that the recent discovery of five red heifers or five cows that have now been approved by Jewish rabbis, is it possible that their discovery is getting ready to usher in the final seven-year period of time called the tribulation that will happen right before the second coming of Jesus? Is that possible based on the news that we've just heard this last week? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And the Bible, to set this up, the Bible tells us that in Daniel chapter 9, and elsewhere, by the way, that there is in the last of the last days, this final seven-year period of time, which we call the tribulation, that will conclude with the second coming of Jesus. Now, last week, we looked at uh, Revelation chapter 9. And, and as we looked at that, it told us that that really wrapped up the first half of that tribulation, three and a half years, in which we saw the, the, the sealed judgments of God and we saw the trumpet judgments of God. And what's amazing is as, as a result of those judgments and all that was happening upon the earth, literally billions of people have died. That one-third of the earth is uninhabitable. That one-third of the bodies of water on earth are, are undrinkable undrink, and unnavigable. And yet the reality is the worst is yet to come. The seven bold judgments are still to come. And before we enter into those events that will happen in the second half of the tribulation period, the book of Revelation slows down. So almost pauses, if you will. And it devotes four chapters, really six chapters, chapters 10 through 15, to the events that surround the middle period of time of this tribulation, events surrounding that, that three-and-a-half period uh, of time. Now, this halfway point, this three-and-a-half years into the tribulation, it's expressed in the Bible a few different ways. This is just kind of another tip to help you when you're seeing all these numbers in the Bible. And it's expressed different ways. It's called, uh, three-and-a-half years is called 42 months, it's called 1260 days. That's according to a Jewish calendar. It's also called times, time, and half a time. It's also called a half of one set of seven, and it's also called half a week. Okay, there's a bunch, uh, but you're going to hear those, and we'll bring them up throughout the message today. But they all mean the same thing, three and a half years. So, when you read chapters 10 through 15, I'd encourage you to be following along with us and, and be reading through Revelation here at LifePoint. Uh, they're talking about, chapters 10 through 15, are talking about the events surrounding this middle period of time, the three-and-a-half-year point of the tribulation. Chapter 10 sets the stage for, and if you want to turn there now, Revelation chapter 10, it sets the stage for what the Apostle John is going to tell us of what's coming in the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years. And to set this up, um, it very, uses very similar language that we see in the book of Daniel. And I'm going to talk about Daniel a couple different times this morning, and it'll come up in the upcoming weeks. But it's similar language, specifically Daniel chapter 12. And so in Daniel, an angel had come and visited the Old Testament you know, saint, Daniel. And the angel gave Daniel information about the last days. 
But Daniel was told by that angel, he was told, hey, I've given you this information, but Daniel chapter 9, 12, verse 9, the angel said to Daniel, you go about your business because the meaning of this message, the message that I've just shared with you about the last days, it's going to remain secret, or some translations, remain sealed until the end of time. In other words, Daniel, you're not going to understand everything I've just shared with you. It's going to be for a later period of time. Later, they will understand what I've shared with you. And that's why you and I actually researching and studying and digging into Daniel is so important for us. So then you get to Revelation chapter 10, and the same angel who spoke to Daniel, hands Dan, uh, or the same angel that spoke to Daniel speaks to the apostle John, and he hands him a, a little scroll. And that angel told him in verse 9, Revelation chapter 10, John, I want you to eat it. John was, was eating the prophecy of Daniel. He was taking in the prophecy of Daniel so that he could share it then with us. So that's the good news. John learned ahead of time about the last days. In fact, it says in that passage that it tasted sweet like honey to him. But then, after he ate and he got all this information, he realized as the information kept, as he kept taking it in, much of it was about God's judgments. And so that left a bitter or sour taste in his stomach. Then, verse 11, John was told, John, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. In other words, John was told, it's time to unseal the prophecy that had been shared with Daniel. And the question was asked in that passage in Daniel, when will all these things that Daniel saw, when will those be fulfilled? I want you to hear Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And I, Daniel, heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven, by the way, very similar language to Revelation chapter 10, and swore by him who lives forever that it will be times, time, and half a time. I just told you. How long is that? Three and a half years. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the Holy Spirit, people, all these events will be completed. See, so the Lord tells Daniel that at the end of the events that happened during this three and a half year, three and a half year period of time, that everything at that point is now completed. Everything's now finished. And that's what really what we're going to be looking at for the remainder of our time looking through the book of Revelation, that final three and a half year period of time. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7 also, in fact, if you can put it back up on the screen, it reminds us the point of all these judgments that happen. And notice what it says there in Daniel 12, verse 7. It's meant to shatter the power of his holy people. Who's the holy people? That's the Israelites. And the shattering refers to breaking their resistance to God and his word. I want to remind us, uh, uh, we've shared with this with you before if you haven't been here, uh, as a reminder, the tribulation period, why does it exist? Well, it exists because God's bringing everything to completion. And part of that is that God is judging the world. He is judging the non-believer. But another part of the tribulation is meant to bring Israel, the Jewish people, to faith in Jesus Christ and to fulfill all the promises that God made to them in what we call the Old Testament. 
In other words, you need to know that God is not finished with the Jewish people. He loves his people, and he has a plan for them, and his plan is to redeem them and to save them. Also, as we've talked before, even though the church has been taken out of the world, has been, if you want to use that word, raptured, even though that happens during this tribulation period, the gospel will be preached And it will be preached on a scale that we've never seen before with people responding to the good news of Jesus. Part of that preaching is going to happen in Jerusalem, and it's going to happen through two specific people that we're just going to call the two witnesses. So I want to set the stage for them, starting now in, uh, excuse me, uh, Revelation chapter 11. So if you're not there yet, turn in your Bible to Revelation Let's pick up. We're going to see in uh, Revelation chapter 11. Let's set the stage for the two witnesses. And it says this. Verse 1, it says, John was given a reed like a measuring rod, and he was told, go and measure the temple. Everybody say temple. Very important. Go measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 120, 60 days, three and a half years. Now we know the holy city is, of course, Jerusalem. Verse 8, by the way, also confirms that. Jump ahead to verse 8 and notice what it says. It says, Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So why would Jerusalem, why would the place where Jesus was crucified, why is that called here Sodom and Egypt? Well, a message is being sent. What do we know about Sodom? What do we know about Egypt? Well, Sodom was a city where there was, where there, that God judged because of its great depravity. What do we know about Egypt? Egypt was the, was the place, the location, the country, if you will, that first introduced idolatry to the Jewish people. So John is indicating in these last days that Jerusalem is not going to be the holy city that God intends it to be. On the contrary, leading up to the middle of this tribulation period, Jerusalem will have become a city of great depravity and idolatry. But here's the key for you and I today. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. The key is that it tells us in the last days, there will be a temple once again in Jerusalem. Now the temple is the very heart of Judaism. The Jewish people, more than anything, long to worship God at their temple. What do we know? We know Solomon built the first temple, right? And then that was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. As prophecy declared, they would return to Israel 70 years later. They did. They rebuilt the temple. But it didn't have the same glory as the time of, in the time of Solomon. Hundreds of years later, that rebuilt temple was expanded upon and built up in an incredible way by a guy by the name of Herod. We've heard of him. He's referred to as Herod the Great. And he built up the temple and he expanded the temple structure, or the temple compound, up to 36 acres from, what it, um, from where the temple sat on top of. And he did that. Now, Jesus told his disciples as they were looking at this incredible temple, that, that, that Herod had expanded and built up, and they're looking at that, and Jesus told his disciples, hey guys, I want you to understand something. This temple that you see, 
It's going to be destroyed. And so it's going to be destroyed so much, not one stone will be left upon another. Well, what do we know? About 40 years later, that happened. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus Vespasian comes in to the city of Jerusalem, destroys the city, destroys the temple completely to where not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus had said. And I want you to think about that, and I want you to keep that in mind as you think about Scripture, as you think about prophecy, as you think about when God declares something. What Jesus said was not allegory. It was not symbolism. What Jesus said was not metaphorical. It was literal. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And what happened? That literally happened. In other words, one of the messages we need to keep a hold of is that you can't allegorize all of prophecy. Now, some, sure, there's a place for that. But we can't go there with all prophecy. That is not good theology. Now, today, almost 2,000 years after that temple was destroyed, which Jesus predicted would happen, there are only remnants of the original supporting structure of that temple compound. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. Raise your hand. Okay, so a bunch of you have. Maybe some of you haven't. Well, what is the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall? It's part of the foundation structure of that outer temple compound that the Jewish people, in fact, go ahead and show a picture there, that the Jewish people flood to every single, here's Nate and I, um, and flood to every single day. And that wall behind us, that's the Western Wall. That's the Wailing Wall. They flood there every day to pray and to, and to long for God to restore the temple again. Above that wall, that above is the 36-acre compound called the Temple Mount. That above that wall is the point where the temple once stood. And why do they pray at that wall? It's just a wall. It's just the outer wall of the compound. Why would they go to the, a, a wall and pray? Because that's the closest they can get to where the temple once stood. And so that's why they go there, and that's why they pray at that specific location. Jesus and Daniel both talk about this future temple that John was told to measure. And in Daniel chapter 9, we, we hear this prophecy about this future temple that's going to become again. And it says this, the ruler, and we're going to talk all about this ruler in the future, will make a, pe a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. There's, you know, uh, seven years is what that symbolizes. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will then set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Daniel is telling us a time is coming in the last days during the tribulation period where there is going to be this world leader and he is somehow, someway going to negotiate a peace treaty that is going to allow the Jewish people to reestablish sacrifices, to rebuild their temple. But after three and a half years, after 42 months or 1260 days, what did the pastor say in Daniel? He's going to abolish the sacrifices and the offerings. Why? Why will he set up this treaty with Israel, allow them to have their temple, allow them to, to, to make sacrifices to God, and then decide to get rid of that? Why would he do that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, he tells us exactly why. 
And Paul tells us this ruler, he's going to set himself up in God's temple, and he's going to proclaim himself to be God. Now, this passage is what uh, um, references back to Daniel 9, verse 27, and in 9, verse 27, a lot of of translations call this what he's going to do, the abomination that causes desolation. Some of you, if you've studied prophecy, you've heard that term. I used a different translation a few moments ago. It's this, what he does, this act, is the abomination that causes desolation. So, if he's going to make a treaty with Israel, allow them to have sacrifices, allow them to have temple worship, what is that? And then he's going to set himself up in the temple, and he's going to declare himself to be God. So what does all that mean? It means there's a temple. Everybody say temple. There will be a temple once again. And that's what John sees in his vision in Revelation. And even though there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD, there are Jewish people from all over the world who want a temple once again. In fact, in the old city of Jerusalem, Today, there is a group called, a place called the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is this incredible place. I've been there, had tours with them. Incredible place. They are dedicated to all aspects of rebuilding a house for God's presence, to rebuilding a holy temple. And so the Temple Institute has constructed all of the vessels, the sacred vessels for the, te- for the temple that are needed to have temple worship and temple sacrifices. And they've all been set up according to exact specifications of the Bible. And so they have the mu- they've created and, and rebuilt or built the, the, the musical instruments that are used by the Levites. They've, they've created the golden crown of the high priest. They've rebuilt the gold and silver tools that are used in the sacrificial systems. The Temple Institute has also completed the most important and essential vessel required, and that's the pure golden menorah. You can see that pure gold menorah in Jerusalem today in the old city uh, with with a synagogue behind it. You can see that there on the screen. There's a picture I snapped when I was there. I don't know if that's the actual, actual one. I mean, pure gold sitting in the middle of of a square. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a replica. But they have rebuilt the pure gold menorah. Also, they've completed two other key vessels, the golden incense altar and the golden table of showbread. Other objects that they've create, uh, re-put together are the sacred uniforms of the priests, and specifically the high priest, and they've created the b- breastplate for the high priest. There's another group that's called this Temple Mount Faithful. They're led by a guy named Gershon Solomon. And it's amazing what they've done. They're working on the building side, the actual temple part, not just the garments and the items used at the temple. They're working on the building itself. And so what have they already prepared? They have already prepared the cornerstones for the new temple. How do they prepare those? How do they get them ready? They're six tons, by the way. These cornerstones, they have prepared using diamond cutting tools, not metal cutting tools. Why? Because Scripture tells us no metal tool can be used in creating or building the temple. And so they are honoring the the, the Scriptures to the T. These six-ton stones have been consecrated by water from the biblical pool of Siloam. 
And over the last several years, Solomon and his followers, they've attempted to get those stones up above that western wall, up on the Temple Mount. They're not going to have any success anytime soon, probably until this ruler comes and does some kind of treaty. But they certainly keep trying to do that. Also, for this future temple to function properly, you have to have priests. And so there is an entire group of people who have been devoted and dedicated to discovering the family lines of the Jewish priests using DNA and and using technology. There's another group called the the Nezer Hakadesh Institute for Kohanic Studies. It's the first world institute for training the Kohanim. Who are the Kohanim? That's the Hebrew word for priest, for training up these priests. And so they're training people right now, priests, to prepare for all the religious duties required by the te- to you know, be a priest in the temple, to do all of the duties, including animal sacrifices. So, this is right now. This is happening right now. You have the sacred vessels. You have the garments. You have building blueprints. You have people being prepared for the priestly duties. But there's been one element that's always been missing for them to actually proceed all the way. And and we learn about that in Numbers chapter 19. In verse 2, it tells us that that when it's time to have the temple, have the temple, a red heifer or red cow must be sacrificed to purify the altar and purify the priest in order for the sacrifices to resume or to begin. Numbers 19 verse 2 tells us that that this red cow, this red heifer, this red cow must be without blemish, without defect, that not even two hairs on its head can be different colors. Now, since the Israelites regained control of Jerusalem in 1967, there have been people trying to find red heifers throughout the world, and they've always, they found them, but they've always been disqualified. But, Literally this last week, for the first time in 2,000 years, rabbis have found and approved of not just one, but five red heifers. And these five red heifers, they were, by the way, found in Texas, and these heifers were flown to Israel this week, literally, and so they're there today. And I don't know about you, maybe you don't get thrilled about this, but man, I get pretty excited about this because I'm looking at scripture and all of this and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we're getting closer to the rebuilding of the temple. All these items are coming into place. Well, the Antichrist, or this world leader, he's going to somehow get involved with Israel. And he's going to help them to rebuild their temple. He's going to set up some type of peace treaty to help make it happen. And perhaps he's going to be the one to to negotiate a monumental treaty because why does there need to be some type of treaty, something to happen? Because on top of that that western wall on the Temple Mount, does anybody know the Jewish temple isn't there, but something else is there? The third holiest site for the Muslims. Does anybody know it's there? It's called the what? The Dome of the rock, right where the temple is supposed to be. And so it's going to take some serious negotiation somehow, some way. I don't know how it's going to happen, but this we do know from Scripture 
that this person will come in and do something no one's been able to do, and there'll be a peace treaty with Israel. But after three and a half years, he's going to break it. He's going to walk into that temple, and he's going to declare, I'm God. You must now all worship me. You must now all worship me. And so John was told in Revelation chapter 1, go, measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. What does that mean, to measure the temple and its worshipers? Well, there's a few times in the Bible where the temple is measured. It's measured in Ezekiel 40, talking about the future millennial temple. In in Zechariah, we're told to measure the temple. In Revelation chapter 20, it's going to tell us about measuring the temple. Many scholars believe that measurement speaks of ownership and evaluation. Ownership and evaluation. In other words, the idea is that God is the owner, right, of all that is on earth, and that God measures the worship of man, that God measures the worship of humanity. And so here's my question for you. If God were to measure you today, how would you measure up? If God were to measure your worship, how would you measure? Jesus said to the seven churches back in Revelation um, earlier, he said, I know all your deeds. You see, Jesus knows us. He knows everything we do. But not only what, he do, what we do, he also knows our heart. Jeremiah chapter 20, God sees the heart and the mind. Proverbs chapter 21, the Lord weighs, or the Lord examines, or the Lord measures. The Lord evaluates the heart. When God measures your worship, your heart for him, what does he see? What does he evaluate? The Israelites, they're going to have a third temple. But we know from Scripture, you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. And God is measuring us. And what does he measure with you? Next, in Revelation chapter 11, we are introduced to these two witnesses, two individuals that are going to do the work of God during the tribulation period of time, the first half of the tribulation. I want to check out their ministry. Let's look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. And it says this. It says, I will appoint my two witnesses. Everybody say witnesses. This is where we're headed the rest of the morning. I will appoint my two witnesses. And they are going to prophesy for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. 42 months. Times time and half a time. All the same language. And notice they prophesy. They're declaring the works of God, the words of God, and they're going to do it for a specific period of time, three and a half years. Who are these witnesses? Well, Revelation chapter 11, verse 4 tells us they're the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Many scholars believe tying this in was Zechariah chapter 4. Many scholars believe that these, these witnesses are Moses and Elijah. That they're going to be filled, if you tie it into Zechariah, filled with the power of God to declare God's mighty words and mighty works. And they're not going to do the ministry of God on their own strength. It's going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do many people believe that they are Moses and Elijah? Well, there's a few reasons. One of the reasons is that Moses and Elijah have shown up before on the scene. You might know the story where Jesus is with just a couple of his disciples, and they go up on this high mountain, and on that high mountain, Jesus was transfigured into his glory. And who was there with them having conversation with them? 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story, and they all tell us it was Moses and Elijah who were there with Jesus. And it makes sense to me. I mean, what two guys have more of an impact on the Jewish people than Moses and Elijah? Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets. And, and what the, the law and the prophets, what does Scripture tells us? It says they testified, testimony, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they show up with Jesus, and they were testifying that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. In the last days, you have these two witnesses, maybe they're Moses and Elijah, we don't know for sure, who will come and they will testify of who Jesus is, and and that all people will have an opportunity to be saved. Now, Revelation chapter 11, verse 5, it goes on and speaks of these witnesses, and it says, if anybody tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devour their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. You don't want to mess with these guys, okay? I mean, just being frank right there. And notice they have the power to shut up the heavens so that it won't rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood. Again, you get references back to to Moses, what he did and what Elijah did. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So they're declaring the words of God, but they're also declaring the works of God. They're displaying the power of God. So you can picture for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, times time and half a time, these individuals are declaring the works of God and they have the power of God residing in them. And they are interpreting for the world for these three and a half years of the first half of the tribulation. They're interpreting what's happening in the world. They're interpreting the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. They're explaining the cataclysms. They're explaining the destruction. They're explaining the hordes of demons coming out of the abyss. They're explaining how the heavens seem to be falling apart. They're explaining how the seas are being destroyed. They want people to know God's purposes in all of this because they don't want anybody to miss the point. This is God's judgment upon wickedness. So it's time to repent. It's time to get right with God. Don't wait any longer. And then in verse 7, Revelation chapter 11, it says, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, first time we hear about this Antichrist in Revelation, he's going to be mentioned 36 more times. We'll talk about him in the coming weeks. This beast will attack the two witnesses, and he'll overpower and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the public square of that great city. So for three and a half years, nobody can harm these guys. But then God allows the Antichrist to come in and to kill them. But I want you to notice a a phrase in this verse that I really hope brings you comfort, but also confidence. Verse 7 said of these two witnesses, when they had finished, everybody say finished. When they had finished their testimony. I want you to think about this. They couldn't die until God was done with them on earth. It wasn't possible. I heard this phrase recently. It goes like this. A child of God doing the work of God in the will of God is invincible until God is done. So maybe, Revelation 7, maybe it's telling us there's no such thing as an untimely death for a Christ follower. Because when God is done with us, when God is finished 
with our testimony here on earth, that's when it's over and not a second before. And by the way, when God's finished with me, why would I want to stick around anyway? I have heaven waiting for me. Why would I want to stick around? And those of you who've had a brush with death, maybe you've thought, man, I guess not, God's not done with me, and I still have purposes to fulfill. If you haven't had a brush with death, imagine if you just wake up every morning and say, oh, I just woke up. I guess God's not done. Today I'm going to live out his purposes in my life. Imagine if we all had that attitude. Oh, I woke up. Thank you, Lord, giving me breath. I'm not with you in heaven. All right, I'm going to do your purposes. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, my only aim, my only goal is to finish the race that God has assigned to me, to complete the task he's given me. And at the end of his life, he said, I have, I I did it. And so I finished my race. I've run the race. I've remained faithful. And so now there's in store for me a prize. Now in store, I live what God called me to do. And so now in store for me is glory. As the song says, if I'm not dead, God's not done. Listen, God has a mission and a purpose for you to fulfill. So you're here, and most of you are breathing. I won't tell you the ones I... God's not done with you. And my question for you is, are you dedicated and devoted to fighting the fight that God has for you, the purposes God has for you. Now, it's interesting to me in Revelation chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that, that their bodies will be lay in the cities and nobody will touch them. And people around the world are going to be giving gifts and celebrating because these guys who spoke truth are dead. Hey, we're excited. We're tired of hearing truth. They're dead. Let's party. Would you agree with this statement? A righteous person who shines the truth of God upon those who are living in darkness, it always causes the one who's living in darkness to become frustrated, agitated, angry, and even abusive. Would you agree with that? You see that happening in our world today? They often take aggressive action, and that's why Paul told Timothy, if you're going to live a godly life, In Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. But Jesus said, take heart. Know that you're blessed if you're living a righteous life and and living the way God has called you to live. Make no mistake. Those of us who choose to live holy and righteous and a loving life, our society views us as a roadblock to the life they want to live. But man, don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Be bold. Be strong. For the Lord your God is with you. Share your testimony. Share the truth of God through the way you live, through the way you speak. Complete your task, the task God has for you. And when you do, Revelation chapter 11, verse 11, for these guys, after three days of being dead in the city, the breath of God returned to them. They stood on their feet. Terror struck those who saw him. Of course it would. They, had, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Giddy up. By the way, if you were here with us before, that's my interpretation of what the voice is going to say. It's going to say, Come up here. And then they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Those of us 
who will, who will remain faithful to God, we will be resurrected to life everlasting. Jesus said, you're my witnesses. These were God's two witnesses. You're, Jesus said to you and I, you're my witnesses. So my question for you is, are you living the life that God has called you to? To be his witness, to share your testimony of what God's doing in your life and how God wants to change their life. God has called you to be his witness, to be a testimony to the goodness and the grace of God. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.